Welcome to the Book Club Girl podcast, where we chat about great books with awesome authors and you, our listeners, get to ask the questions. I'm Tavia Kowalchuk, a serious book lover and an adamant red wine imbiber. And I'm Eliza Rosenberry. I also love books and wine, and I confess the Boston Red Sox. (laughs) (laughs) Are you going to heckle me about the Red Sox? (laughs) Know it, Eliza. I could heckle you about the Red Sox, but I will let the opportunity pass. (laughs) Thank you. I appreciate that. (laughs) On today's show, The Hunter Becomes the Hunted, a Nazi on the run, and the English journalist and Russian bomber pilot who joined forces to track her down. We'll be talking about the novel The Huntress, and later in the show, we'll be joined by its author, Kate Quinn, who also wrote the bestseller, The Alice Network. But first, we present to you The Huntress Abridged. The Huntress is about a Nazi murderess known as The Huntress, who disappears after World War II to escape punishment, and a trio of Nazi hunters, Jordan, an aspiring photographer, Ian, a former war correspondent, and Nina, a Russian bomber pilot. Author Kate Quinn seamlessly weaves together three different timelines and perspectives in this gripping novel that takes readers on an adventure from Siberia to Salzburg to Boston. So, Eliza, what did you think of this book? I loved this book. It was so much fun to read. I loved the history and the research that went into it. For me, it was the sense of place that really came through in the book from, like you said, Siberia to Salzburg and particularly Boston, which happens to be my hometown. And I was thinking about this earlier. So much of Boston's history is connected to the Revolutionary War and the Boston Tea Party and and all of that. And so for me, it was super fun to see a different historical era, the sort of post-World War II moment reflected back to me in the the city streets. Um, That was was very fun to read. What did you think of the book, Tavia? So I agree with everything you say. Being from Boston, I didn't have that strong connection. But what really grabbed me about this book was the strong female characters. I love finding a kind of class anywhere, really, in real life, in fiction, in movies. Um, You know, Nina, the bomber pilot, reminded me of Sarah Connors. She was just so badass. And she had this sort of dark side to her that really drove her heroism and her passion to, you know, fight the bad guys. And I, it just, I found that so captivating. And then um, Jordan reminded me of George O'Keefe in the way that George O'Keefe was this sort of vanguard female artist who really self-branded. And Jordan, you know, when we're sort of in her thoughts, she she imagines herself as Jay Bride. She has, you know, her name that she wants to use um, on all of her photographs. And I just think that both of these women, Nina and Jordan, they so appealed to me because of their non-traditional preferences. They preferred college over marriage, war photography over housekeeping, being a bomber pilot over staying in Siberia and, you know, taking care of her father. And I just, I kept reading for these women. I completely agree. I loved these characters. Kate Quinn did an amazing job with them. Quick reminder, we love hearing from you. Join our Facebook group, The Book Club Girls, where you can talk with other book lovers and pose your own questions to the authors who will appear on this show. You can find us at facebook.com slash groups slash The Book Club Girls. Stick around after the episode to hear a sneak peek from the audiobook for The Huntress. Today, we're joined by Kate Quinn, whose new book, The Huntress, is out now. Welcome, Kate, to the Book Club Girl podcast. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm really delighted to be here. We're so glad to have you here. So for our first question, besides The Huntress herself, the book follows Nina, one of the night witches. 
these very real Russian fighter pilots were an all-female regiment during World War II. Speaking of Nina, Candy wrote in with a question. The scene where Nina realizes she wants to become a pilot is so memorable and reminded me of discovering my own passions. It also sort of mirrors Jordan's love for photography. Did you have a similar moment of discovering your passion for writing? Yes, absolutely I did. Um, I remember I had a Kings and Queens of England paper dolls book when I was only about six or seven years old. And, you know, I was a grow up in a family with a librarian mother and who loved history. So I was, you know, watching BBC and I Claudius at a very young age instead of the Disney Channel. And you know, I'm already infatuated with these historical figures. I'm reading about them. I'm looking at pictures of them. And I remember finally looking at one uh, little bio of, you know, I think it was Edward II, you know, in his fabulous jeweled robes. And I'm thinking, that's a really interesting story. I could write that story. And that was the very first short story that I ever wrote. It was a front and back two-page story in pencil on unlined paper all about the assassination of Edward II and by uh, his queen and her lover and really it's pretty uh, dramatic considering I was seven when I wrote it and I didn't even know what a lover was but it, honestly I think it came out pretty well. <laughs> oh my gosh so I just have to say the to me the most impressive part about that whole story was the paper was unlined. <laughs> and it was in pencil, and it was very bad print, uh, block printing, you know, the kind they teach seven-year-olds. So, um, yes. <laughs> yeah, it's still in a file somewhere in my mom's house. I have to dig it up at some point. So, uh, you know, I want to talk about the characters in The Huntress. They are so complex, and Kate, you build them through small details. You allow the reader to make up their own mind about the motives for their actions. I think it's no wonder that so many of our fans had questions about how you created the characters. Jennifer asks, who inspired you to create the character Nina? Do you know someone who hangs their sink-washed clothes on a line in the bathroom like Nina did? I do not know anyone like Nina. I wish I did. I think she'd be great fun at a party, although I think she'd drink all your vodka and your house would be a wreck by the time she left. But she was a real composite of a number of different women who were real night witches in the regiment. And most of the experience she's, experiences she has are actual experiences that real women had. You know, she there was one night witch pilot who became inspired to become a pilot when she saw a mail plane land off course at her tiny Siberian village, the very first time she'd ever seen an aircraft and knew that was what she wanted to do. You know, there was another woman who recalls, you know, completely calmly, like this is just another day at the office, that sometimes if a bomb got stuck on the bomb rack when you were flying a night run, you're your navigator would just have to go climbing out on the wing at a thousand meters and lie down flat and push it off the bomb rack, you know, so you could get that off the wing before you return to base. You know, no big deal, right? And these were events that were real, that really happened. And so when I was taking these events and making them be Nina's experiences, slowly the kind of character that she wanted to be came into into play. And really, I don't think I had very much to do with her character because really she sort of barnstormed into my head from the reading that I was doing and announced that she was going to go have adventures and if I wanted to keep up, I'd better write faster. And um, as far as hanging the laundry in the room, I think anybody who's ever had to travel and had to do some traveling overseas and you know has been living out of a suitcase knows what it's like to wash your stuff out in a sink and hang it over the rod. <laughs> so I was just <laughs> imagining, though, what 
impression that would give to a very straight-laced Englishman who suddenly has a uh, Siberian anarchist walk into his very orderly office and his very orderly life and start throwing things around. (laughs) Kate, I want to ask you about another one of your characters. You live in Southern California, but you attended Boston University. And one of the book's leads, Jordan McBride, grows up in post-World War II Boston. Rachel wants to know, what parts of the book were inspired by your life in Boston? Oh, all of it. I have to say, all the Boston stuff was almost always drawn from life. These are streets that I have walked. These are neighborhoods that I have gone through and shopped in. Um, There were, of course, things that were not extant at the time that are extant now and vice versa. Um, You're not going to find Priscilla of Boston's there anymore on um, just off of Newbury Street, the wedding dress shop where Jordan and her stepmother shop for bridal clothes because it's no longer around. However, you will find today Mike's Pastry in the North End where uh, Jordan is suggested she go get some cake if she need, or some pie if she really needs some. And I recommend Mike's Pastry very highly because that is the best pastry you will ever eat in your entire life. It was there in 1947 and it, since 1947 and it's here today. But I really enjoyed living in Boston. It's a city I love. I lived there for uh, two degrees and did some work afterward. And as soon as I knew I had a thread of this story that would take place in America, I knew the city had to be Boston. Partially that's practical. Um, it means less research for me because I don't need to look up whether one turns right or left when you're coming out of the Fenway area onto Commonwealth Avenue. I know you're turning right because I've done it. Uh, on the other hand, though, it's a very colorful setting. And it offered a lot of opportunity for, you know, um, a rich environment. And plus, you know, given that I am an enormous baseball fan, this gave me the opportunity to plunk my team of Nazi hunters and Russian pilots, etc., down at a Red Sox-Yankees game where they could actually watch the Red Sox beat the Yankees. I was determined that scene was going to get in there, and it does. And it was a real game that happened in 1951, and the Red Sox did beat the Yankees senseless, I'm happy to say. I love that scene. I The idea of a Brit trying to figure out the rules of American baseball was very entertaining. I really like that scene a lot. Yeah, I had fun with that. I thought, you know, for one thing, a Brit who is more used to cricket or rugby trying to figure out baseball is funny enough. But then you throw in a little Russian bomber pilot who's can't figure out why people aren't beating each other with the bats, which is more the kind of sport that she's used to. I figured you really had comedy in a bottle right there, and I couldn't let that scene go. Switching, switching gears a little bit, an aspect of the book that I really appreciated and enjoyed is all the references to lakes and the mythical creatures that haunt them. Near Boston, you include Selkie Lake. In Siberia, there's Lake Baikal, which is inhabited by the Rusalka. And then there's Lake Rusalka itself in Poland. Not only that, it seems that the huntress herself is named Lorelei. One of the members of our Facebook group, Dobner, wants to know, Did you visit any of the lakes you listed in the book? I wish I had. Um, It would have been great to do so, but I couldn't get to all the uh, traveling locations that I would have liked to in this book, partly budget and partly time constraints. But one thing that I struggled with, and this is where the lakes really helped me out, the lake theme and then the lake spirit theme, was that in the beginning of this book, I had three very different people who were all standing on practically different continents. And I needed some common thread to draw them together thematically before they actually become drawn together physically by the plot. So I ended up with the idea of a lake doing that when I happened to stumble across 
uh, the very real man-made Lake Rusalka in Poland. It was uh, made by the Nazis, I believe, in around 1942 using prisoner labor. It's a beautiful lake with a very ugly history. A number of atrocities happened there and uh, some murders uh, under the Third Reich. And as soon as I saw that, I realized not only would that provide a location for a certain very critical meetup to happen in Nazi-occupied territory in Poland, but the name itself, Lake Rusalka, gave me a theme because a Rusalka is the Russian and Eastern European water nymph. And almost every culture has a water nymph. And she's sometimes uh, malevolent and she's sometimes benevolent. It really depends on how scary the fairy tale gets. So there was, uh, the Russians have Lake Rusalka. And so then immediately I knew Nina would have to grow up on the shore of a lake. And Lake Baikal was just the perfect answer. It's this the deepest, biggest lake in the world, I believe, because of how deep it is. And it has flora and fauna there you will not find anywhere else in the world. If there's anywhere that a Rusalka actually lives, it would be Lake Baikal. So that's where Nina <laughs> begins. And a Rusalka is the f- legend she grows up with. In Germany, the, well, for example, Ian starts his part of the book running along a lake in Germany, and the German water spirit is a Lorelei. So that seemed an appropriate name to give my villainess who is the spirit they're hunting in some ways. And then I brought things around full circle to America where I did admittedly make up Selkie Lake. There is no Selkie Lake in Massachusetts, but I really wanted to bring that full circle because the Scottish myth for a water fairy is the Selkie. So I brought things around there and that gave me a way that I could give all of the characters something in common, even if just a thematic thread before they finally meet. I just loved it. I thought it was brilliantly done and I enjoyed it so much as a reader. Oh, thank you. Jennifer wrote to us on our Book Club Girls Facebook group. She said, Kate, how did you get to be so completely awesome? (laughs) Okay, I do not know how to answer that even in the slightest. Um, Especially considering that I do not live a glamorous life at all. There is none of this thing about, you know, how a writer's life is glamorous. I I see Vogue articles sometimes about, you know, this is what, you know, the the writer at home, and there's always these, you know, dry clean only silk blouses that make me laugh hysterically because I live my life in (laughs) yoga pants that are covered in dog hair. And the only thing about me that is noteworthy probably is the fact of just how much black coffee I can actually consume in one sitting. (laughs) Very impressive. How much black coffee is that? You really don't want to know, and neither does my uh, <laughs> neither does my doctor. <laughs> um, we have a question from Marissa who wants to know: How do you research the various characters' passions from aviation to photography? For the book. I'm not a photographer myself, and I'm not certainly not a flyer. In fact, I'm the kind of person who white knuckles in a 747. So n- most of Nina's. Uh, exploits in the air really would make me quite terrified. However, I do as much research as I can in from if, if getting, if possible, as many firsthand accounts from people who can describe not just what they do, how to develop a picture, how to turn on a World War II era biplane, but also how does it feel? How does it feel to fly? How does it feel to take a picture that you know is good? And that's really the thing when it comes down to getting in deep to how this goes and how it how to portray it. I did for the sake of this book, uh, not only uh, do some flying in a flight simulator where I managed to download Nina's actual uh, Polycarpov U2 or the PO2 as it's called now. And I did some, I did some simulated flying on it so I could kind of see what it would feel like to guide the stick and guide the plane around. And I also did a ride in a World War II era biplane 
at the local uh, at the local airfield with a company called Fun Flights. It was fantastic. My charming British pilot took me up in a World War II era uh, Traveler 4000 named Olive. And anybody who's read the book will know that a plane Traveler 4000 named Olive does in fact appear at the end of the book at a crucial moment. And he allowed me to put his plane in the book. He was quite pleased by that. And he let he uh, flew raids, practice bombing raids all over the hills of San Diego in this very helpful fashion. So that was some of the research I did for the flying. Um, for photography, that was a little harder, but I read a lot of photography uh, biographies and autobiographies. I happened to have my brother-in-law is an extremely talented photographer in Houston, and it was something I wanted to get into to see how would someone who is used to looking at the world of the camera view the world and everything in it. And that really was what it comes down to is that in the end, I don't like book characters where especially the female characters are nothing but their love lives I want my fictional women to have hobbies and to have passions and to have you know professions if possible you know whatever it needs to make them really as fully rounded as they can be and so it's not only about assigning a character you know a hobby or a job that she loves it's about how does that job change her worldview how does it make her look at things differently how would a photographer as opposed to a flyer as opposed to a ballet dancer or a an engineer look at the world around them because that really is what shapes the, the that's how passions shape the way characters look at things and when you're looking through their eyes that that is the thing you really need to know absolutely and in jordan's case um you know, how she looks at the world really becomes central to the plot. It really moves the plot along in her in her narrative. So um, I love how that how you wove that into the the way the plot unfolded as well. Oh, thank you for that. You're listening to the Book Club Girl podcast, where our guest this week is Kate Quinn, whose book The Huntress is out now. You can read more about Kate's book at bookclubgirl.com. Coming up on the Book Club Girl podcast, we ask Kate Quinn about her upcoming projects and her literary white whale. This episode of the Book Club Girl podcast is brought to you by The Song of the Jade Lily by Kirsty Manning. It's a historical novel that tells the story of Jewish refugees who leave Vienna and flee to Shanghai in the late 1930s after the Nazi occupation. The Song of the Jade Lily weaves together the past and the present in a gripping novel. It's available now wherever books are sold. Welcome back to the show. Each week, we bring you a new fascinating conversation with an author who's written a book we think is a great choice for book clubs to read together. Today, Kate Quinn, whose new book, The Huntress, follows a trio of Nazi hunters in their pursuit of truth and justice, is here with us now answering questions from fans. Melanie from our Facebook group wants to know, are there any plans for a sequel to The Huntress? And what other writing projects are you working on? I don't have any plans for a sequel to The Huntress at this point. Um, I do think that character-wise, the arcs have been nicely closed. But, you know, never say never. Um, I wouldn't entirely rule out maybe the possibility of returning to see what Ruth is up to as she grows up, possibly, the little girl in The Huntress, Mm -hmm. or seeing maybe what kind of hunts the team does in future. I mean, these are possibilities that could 
get interesting somewhere down the road. Who knows? I never rule anything out. But right now what I'm working on is a book titled The Rose Code. And that is a book about the female code breakers of Bletchley Park who were immured up in Buckinghamshire for the duration of World War II and whose efforts in breaking the supposedly unbreakable German military codes reportedly shortened the war by about two years. And that is a story I am so fascinated by, I am so excited by, and I am this close to actually uh, getting my rough draft finished. Well, we can't wait to read it. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. It's terrible right now. It's absolutely abysmal. That's the way all my rough drafts look to start. So no, you don't want to read it. You really don't. In fact, I don't want anybody to read it either. But that's also how I always feel about rough drafts at this stage. So basically, I just need my husband to restrain me from throwing it on the fire and then remind me that I can edit it into something that's readable. And then, you know, sooner or later, I will um, get it to the point where I no longer hate it. And then you're welcome to read it then. (laughs) (laughs) I look forward to that moment. (laughs) Yeah, me too. Uh, The hatred stage is a little rough. <laughs> Kate, a little bird told me that you have a collaborative novel coming out. I do, and I'm really excited about it. It's my next, it's really my next full novel, and it is a novel of the fr- women of the French Revolution, which has been a passion of mine since high school. It's titled Ribbons of Scarlet, a novel of the French Revolution's women, and it's a A to Z view of the French Revolution itself told through the eyes of seven different women who were on the ground, real historical figures who spanned everything from princesses to peasants, from radicals to moderates, from politicians to innocents, and who all had a role to play. And I co-worked, I worked on this with five other authors of historical fiction, all women, all wonderful friends of mine, and we are so excited for this novel. That book sounds so exciting. I remember when I was in high school, my social studies teacher went he taught the French Revolution, he got so excited about the revolution. He jumped on his desk and he started shouting, revolution! (laughs) I had a similar thing. You know, I became fascinated with the French Revolution because I had a wonderful uh, high school teacher, uh, history teacher, when I was only about 16, sophomore year. And she loved the revolution. She taught it so well. She had us reenact the National Assembly, where I got to be the spokesperson for the Third Estate and have my speech completely dismissed by the king. And I was so furious, I was ready to grab a pike on the spot. I tell you, I really worked on that speech. And <laughs> she had us march down to the tennis courts at the school to recite the tennis court oath together. And I will never forget those classes how the love for history that it for that history that it gave me because I've never forgotten it and you know really without that first spark I'm not sure I would have you know been so enthusiastic to write this wonderful book each episode we ask an author what is your literary white whale it's a book they've either always meant to read or when they started reading and never finished let's hear what Kate has to say oh that's a really good question um You know, I think mine would have to be, I have still not read Wolf Hall for all that it's, you know, I have had everybody rave about it and for all that I love the Tudors and for all that it's been on my TBR for so long, I've still not read Wolf Hall. And, you know, really this needs to be the year that I remedy that. Kate, I think that you would love it. Wolf Hall is one of my all-time favorite books and Cromwell has become such a larger than life figure for me. 
after having read the books, I think that you will really enjoy it. Oh, I have no doubt that I will. It's just a matter of seeing if I can carve out the time and really dive deep, because I know that's a book that really is going to take a deep dive to appreciate well. Kate, let's make a pact. It's been on my shelf for years as well. This will be the year (laughs) that we both read Wolf Hall. Yes, this is the year of Wolf Hall. That is absolutely happening. (laughs) All right. It's a deal. Kate, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. It's been really a delight having you. Well, it's been delightful to be here, and I wish you guys all the best. That was Kate Quinn, whose book, The Huntress, is out now. To find out more about Kate's book and how to buy it, head to bookclubgirl.com, where you can also find links to everything else that we mentioned in this episode. Like what you heard? Subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please give us a rating and leave a review. And another way to help spread the word about the Book Club Girl podcast is to tell a friend, which really helps other people to find us. You'll hear from us again in two weeks, where we'll be speaking with Lou Burney about his new book, November Road. You can join the conversation, too. If you've read November Road and have a question for Lou Burney, post them in the comments on our Book Club Girls Facebook group. Or you can call us at 212-207-7336 and leave us a message. You can also send us an email, thegirls at bookclubgirl.com. We love to hear from you. Before we go, a big thank you to Jordan Gosperé, who produced today's episode, to Jennifer Hart, the original Book Club Girl, and to Amelia Wood, the heart and soul behind the Book Club Girl Facebook group. Until next time, I'm Tavia. And I'm Eliza. Happy reading. The plane had touched down in a long clearing in the taiga. The pilot was standing by the cockpit with a toolbox, cursing, and Nina stared at him mesmerized. He looked as tall as a god in his overalls and flying cap. She didn't dare come closer, just sank to her heels in a stand of bush and watched him work on the engine. She couldn't stop looking at the plane, its long lines, its proud wings. It took her a long time to work up the courage to approach. But she moved out from the brush, slowly came forward. The pilot turned and found Nina under his nose. He jumped back, boots slipping in icy mud. Fuck your mother, you scared me. His Russian was clipped, strangely accented. Who are you? Nina Borisovna, she said, dry-mouthed. She raised a hand in greeting and saw his eyes dance over the dried rabbit blood showing under her nails. I live here. Who lives in a mud splat like this? The pilot looked at her a little longer. A real little savage, aren't you? He said, turning back to his toolbox. Nina shrugged. This isn't even Listvianka, is it? No. Even Listvianka was bigger than her village. The pilot swore some more. Hours, of course, from Irkutsk. Planes don't land here, Nina managed to say. Where are you from? Moscow, he grunted, slinging tools. I fly the mail route, Moscow to Irkutsk, longest route in the motherland, he added, unbending. Detoured past Irkutsk in the fog, he had some engine trouble, nothing serious. I could fly this girl home on one wing if I had to. What kind of, I mean... Nina wished she could stop blushing and stammering. She could have eaten the local boys for breakfast, but here she was tripping over her words like a lovesick girl. Only she wasn't in love with a man, but a machine. What kind of plane is this? 
a PE-5. She's beautiful, Nina whispered. She's a brick, the pilot said dismissively. But a good Soviet brick. Hey, get back, little girl, he barked as Nina reached toward the wing. I'm not a little girl, she flashed. I'm 19. He chuckled, went on working. Nina wished she understood what he was doing. She could have opened up a rabbit or a seal or a deer and known every organ and bone. But the PE-5's innards were strange to her. Masses of wires and gears, the smell of oil. She breathed it in as though it were wildflowers.